1: On a show like Queer Eye on Netflix, how does the casting director know what to look for in the person who will get their life flipped around by the Fab Five?
2: Oh, God, we had a woman who was obsessed with poop emojis, and it was just poop emojis. It's those little nuances. It's not just like, my closet's a mess.
1: And where does an Academy Award-winning special effects makeup artist look for inspiration?
3: And sometimes it's an old person who has great skin or terrible skin. Sometimes the sun damage is just like, oh wow, how do I simulate that sun damage?
1: And could the costume designer for Shit's Creek ever go too far with the bold and, dare I say audacious, look of Moira Rose? You couldn't. <laughs> well, alright, I'm Kayone Wolf. Come backstage with me for the second installment in our behind-the-scenes series. That's next on Audacious. Right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolfe. With the world the way that it is, it's no wonder that we spend so much of our time watching television and movies. From sci-fi flicks like Star Trek to unscripted reality shows like Queer Eye to comedy dramas like Schitt's Creek, we are basking in the very best distractions. And while the actors tend to take center stage, as it were, today you'll enjoy the second installment of a series in which we honor the folks who make the magic happen behind the scenes. I mentioned Star Trek, Queer Eye, and Schitt's Creek for a good reason. Later, you'll meet the Academy Award winning special effects makeup artist who brought some of those surreal Star Trek characters to life. And you'll get to know the casting director who not only chose all the folks who got transformed during each episode of Queer Eye, she helped find the Fab Five, who hosts this most recent iteration of the show. But first, Schitt's Creek, which, if you've been living in a pop culture hole for the past year, is spelled S C H I T T apostrophe S Creek, is a Canadian show known and celebrated for a lot of things. Its representation of LGBTQ characters, its stellar writing and acting, and, of course, its costume design. But let's back up. For those who are new to the creek, the affluent Rose family are suddenly penniless, defrauded by their business manager. In the very first episode, you watch them breathlessly pack their valuables as they're being evicted from their ornate mansion. Johnny Rose, his two adult children, David and Alexis, and his wife, former daytime soap opera actress Moira, flee to live in a motel in a town that Johnny once bought as a joke called Schitt's Creek. And that's where the six seasons of this Emmy award-winning series takes place. Even if you're barely familiar with this show, when you visualize the characters, you probably most vividly imagine its larger-than-life matriarchal figure, Moira Rose. You have Deborah Hanson to thank for that image of actress Catherine O'Hara wearing a mostly black-and-white designer wardrobe with bold accessories, including, of course, a roster of wigs which is a stunning contrast with the rest of the folks in the sleepy town of Schitt's Creek who tend to rock flannel, jeans, and t-shirts. There's a lot to unpack there, and if I had multiple hours with Deborah Hansen, I'd ask her about every single character's style, but in my limited time, I focused mostly on how she created the singular Moira Rose.
0: Oh, I have to admit to it being quite easy. Catherine, Dan Levy, and myself all kind of hit on the same visual idea to follow for for Moira. We all had the same references and basically it was about uh, Daphne Guinness.
1: Yeah, she's a, an English fashion designer and socialite who's she's known for her like signature platinum and black
0: striped hair and striking shoes and accessories. And we follow that look and that feeling to the very end, you know, we talked about her uh, being a confident woman, a bold woman, assured, completely conceptual in her mind and unique, original, smart, strength, every, everything. She just epitomized what we thought Moira would aspire to. If she wasn't, she was going to aspire to that. Right. And, and that kind of individual confidence style. And, um, Catherine had spoken to Dan about it. Dan agreed to speak to me about it first. And I totally laughed when he said, because my library has two or three books on her. I knew a lot about her. And so we could follow through on that. And we weren't copying. I mean, gosh, couldn't afford it. Uh, You know, very close. Uh, But Dan set some very clear uh, guidelines as far as he wanted the, he didn't want us to mimic Fashion or designers, he wanted original pieces and he wanted us to only use. So it didn't look like a McQueen, it was a McQueen. So, with our very limited budget, and it was a very small budget, it's a small Canadian show, it was pretty tricky to do. Yes, we went to all the consignment stores and vintage stores, but we started online. And so I'd send something to Dan, he'd send something to me, we'd back and forth and put this together. But we bought Throughout the six seasons, we just trolled those uh, sections. And we had some, some people who, who donated uh, clothing to us. And uh, occasionally, and very occasionally, we would rent something like uh, purses, for instance, because they were so extraordinarily expensive that we couldn't even buy very many of them online on sales. Did you ever go too far with
1: Moira's look? You
0: couldn't. <laughs> I... <laughs> I I honestly say that because there were times when we'd sit back and go, it's not far enough. It's really too good. It's too, it just doesn't push the point that she would do. She always has to go one step beyond what is not acceptable because you everybody accepted everything that she wore, but no, um, we would, we would push it. And sometimes it was the, what it became sometimes was really the layering of the jewelry, which was all costume jewelry. Right. There was no good pieces there at all.
1: That reminds me, I I think it's clear that Moira finds great comfort in her clothes as sort of, you know, like evidence of the life she used to lead and a connection to her long gone wealth and sense of security. So that being said, I'd like to hear about the thought process that went into how often she sleeps wearing a vest and a brooch. Where did that idea come from?
0: That came from a fitting that we were doing. Uh, and we had beautiful silk in men's pajamas for her. And she put them on and they looked beautiful. And I said, it's just not enough, is it? And then I thought, oh, I thought of all those like 30s films and uh, you used to see women lou- lounging around and, and they also kind of in the menswear, they would wear vests and like Marlena Dietrich. And I went, hmm. So I went and I, I had a stock, my own stock there. And I had some period vests there and I grabbed one and I said, let's try this. And we loved it. And I said, well, you would just take it off when you went to bed. And Catherine said, oh, no, I'll sleep in this in case somebody wakes me up and I have to do something. I have to look right. And uh, I said, mm, still not enough. So I said, oh, look at this one. I grabbed another vest and it had this brooch of mine on it. And I just put it on to see the vest and the brooch was there. And we went, oh, this is it, this is it. And I said, well, you'll still have to take it off. And she said, no, 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 sleep in my jewelry. Maybe these are the only real pieces of jewelry she has. She's taken them to bed, because if anything happens, it's leaving with her. And I thought that made complete sense. There's always a logic to it, right? So when we did those brooches, we always made sure that they had a nice look to them, that they maybe were vintage or real pieces. They were hidden in her junk jewelry away from the, uh, the authorities. <laughs> the authorities, the police.
1: <laughs> now, one other question that comes up a lot, especially for David and Moira, is why is their color palette black and white? Why did you make that decision?
0: I think that basically goes back to the Nafti Guinness to start with, right? And we wanted to put her in an environment where small town people didn't dress like that. They, they wore a bit of color, but it's it's a much more work clothes than, than hers. So, um, yeah, there was a lot of thought there. And we stuck with it. We, it became who they were. But we broke it up. You know, I was looking at the other, the other day. Somebody sent me like a million pictures in this, like everything she wore from season, da, da, da. And I went through it. And we did add color. And, and I did want to do that. We use a lot of gold, if you think of gold as a color and silver as accents, but uh, we did have some color in her. And I think that that was important. And I pushed that a little bit that maybe once a season we see there's a Balmain or a Balenciaga. I'm not sure, colored skirt. There's definitely a fire colored orange one in black that that's a McQueen. Sometimes it's a piece of red or color in the jewelry. We use the blue, but very, very little just to say that she's, she's bold enough to do that, or she's open enough to do that. And it has to be in the form true still to her style, but we did introduce it. And I think it gives a little break to people. And then when she comes back in another black and white, (laughs) my God, yes, there she is again. You know,
1: let's talk about how you have to collaborate with other people who are adorning these actors. So let's talk about wigs. I am legally required to ask you about the wigs. In the very beginning of the first episode of this whole show, when the Rose family are frantically packing up everything they own while being evicted from their mansion, we get our first look at Moira's wigs all of whom, of course, have names.
2: My very soul has been kidnapped. There's no ransom. No one's coming to save me. We've got
1: 15 minutes to collect our
2: personals. Can we pick up the pace? No, no, did you put Christy with Robin? They don't like each other. No, no.
1: These wigs ranged from pink to green to red to black to white. They're curly, they're frazzled, they're straight, they're blown out. They are, to me, the cherry- on top of Moira, literally and figuratively, because she could probably also pull off having a cherry-inspired wig. Talk about the power of the wigs on Moira Rose.
0: The power of the wigs is extraordinary. And Anya and the hair and makeup people work separately from my department and from me, but we collaborate. As soon as we had the fittings done, and even before we chose a particular outfit, we would send those photographs across the way or go over and see them and visit them. And during the fittings, quite often Catherine would say, Oh, I think the wig should be. And they would discuss that. And then they would try things and send them back to myself and Dan so that everybody agreed to what they were. And they would shock and surprise me at times, you know, and and it was such a delight. Um, but they followed through. The, the clothing came first and then makeup and, and hair came in and just enhanced everything.
1: I'm sure you hear most about Moira and David, but what other characters do you have an affinity for whose clothing choices aren't in the spotlight as much as you wish they were?
0: I actually think the one, it's not about fashion but I think it's really good design, and that's Emily, Emily Hampshire. Mm, Emily
1: Hampshire, she played Stevie Bud, the concierge and eventual owner of the hotel where the Rose
0: family was living. Yeah. Yes. Because it, she wears this, the same thing but different, but there's a, a story about her, and it's very, very subtle. You know, the, the talk when she has a dress on, you know, when she goes – you know, to one of the parties, and we were putting a dress on her. What would it be? Or when she was out of that hotel and just her, you know, her t shirt and her jeans and uh, what choices. They were really difficult. And when I got it right, Emily would start to cry, which I love. You know, every designer loves it when crying a good way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a really good way. Um, I think Alexis, uh, Annie was the most difficult to do. Yep. Annie, who played Alexis, the
1: very, Stylish daughter of the Rose family.
0: Yeah. And that's because she had to look like the It girl. She had to look stunning, which is not difficult to do for her. But she's a character that has her mother's influence. She has all her It girl friends' influence. She travels internationally. She had money, but she had no confidence, right? Her style is not as defined and clear and confident as her mother's or as David's. And so she never until the very end starts, and when she gets a job, right? And she's doing really well at it. She goes to the red carpet, is, you know, and she's running that red carpet. And, you know, she has a gold Yves Saint Laurent and she looks fabulous, but she feels great and she chose that. That's what she wanted, I think. And for me, that was a beautiful, beautiful, interesting design journey because we had the most difficult time with her. We had clothes up the wahooza you know, to put on her and everything fit. There was none, never that issue, but it was always, it doesn't feel right. Or let's try this one. And it really had to have its own individual story that came from, this is what I was like. This is what I want to be like. This is who I think I am. This is who I am.
1: Did you get to keep anything?
0: No, 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 no. no. No, no. Some of the things were mine. Not, not very much. But, you know. <laughs> Is there any outfit?
1: Now, I won't I won't ask you which was your favorite outfit in the series, because that's cruel. But which one made your heart skip a beat when you pulled it off?
0: Moira going to find David <laughs> when he was with the Amish. We had these uh, I think they're Balenciaga, these strange looped tights. But I knew it needed something more. And so that was when the hat came in and we just put it together. And when she came in and we did a final fitting, we just went, oh, it's good. Part of that whole creation was it needed balance with Dan. You know, he was in the harder with the Mohawk piece, which <laughs> and that was Dan. I take no, no credit for that at all. He said, look at this, Deborah. And I went, oh, my God. But I knew I had to balance that look with his mother and it and actually she made him look more real in a sense because the two of them were out there it wasn't just him alone in the field with the Amish going what have we done (laughs) by letting this man have but you know it's all it was all about contrast with their simplicity so that costume I'm very proud of it's still when I see it I love it I love it do you miss them Yes, I miss the actors a lot because after six years and of doing such intense work because even though it was a comedy, that work was incredibly intense to make it not comedy, to make it real for each one of those characters. And they were incredibly brave, collaborative people. How can you not love those people? I mean, my job is basically to help them be real, to help them create their characters and feel comfortable and real. This is what Alexis is going to wear running today. She's going to go to her closet and she's going to choose this, right? Or she's going on this date, Emily. I want to impress them like this. And if they feel that 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 is what it is, it isn't something that they put on or I'm saying here, this is what I, the designer, am doing and it's right you know and so just do it it's not it's it, it the word collaboration is is what it is and that's why you miss it because it is rare it is not something that you get all the time and i think everybody felt it and was confident with it and if they didn't like something they could tell me i didn't you know you just move on you skin the cat 50 ways right well i
1: want to be respectful of your time is there anything that i missed that you want to make sure you say about your work in costume design on shit's creek
0: No, I'm just really um, happy that people have reacted uh, so well to this show visually, but the message. I mean, that's, that's what is amazing about this show is that it has a message for us all. No matter what you look like, where you live, kindness and consideration for others is what's the most important thing. And to be inclusive. You know, everybody knew what Dan and Eugene thought was important and everybody felt really good. So, yeah, I'm really proud of it.
1: Well, Deborah Hansen, costume designer for Shits Creek, thank you so much for talking with me.
0: Uh, you're very welcome.
1: When we get back, how did the casting director for Queer Eye pick the Fab Five in the first place? Plus, there's a whole
3: character in just the hair and getting that right is you know is crucial
1: take a master class in special effects makeup and what's the market rate for a realistic looking head these days i'm Kyone wolf find out on audacious right after the break this is audacious i'm Kyone wolf Today's the second installment of our series celebrating folks who work behind the scenes of your favorite movies and shows. Later, you'll meet the casting director for Queer Eye and find out what they're looking for in the people that the Fab Five work their magic on. But first, if it wasn't for Barney Berman, the 2009 movie Star Trek by J.J. Abrams probably wouldn't look the way it does. He won an Academy Award for his special effects makeup on that film, and you've seen his work on Arrested Development, Grim, Medium, Planet of the Apes, Mission Impossible 3, and Pirates of the Caribbean, just to name a few. Now, it's important to know that Barney comes from a long line of special effects makeup artists. The family business started with his grandfather, Ellis Berman Sr. He was a pioneer in film makeup, having worked on productions like the original Twilight Zone series and The Wolfman movie. Along with his father, his brother, and his uncle, he's been keeping the Berman family tradition of special effects makeup alive in the entertainment industry. And now, Barney's released the first movie that he's written, directed, produced, and acted in: Barney Berman's Wild Boar, available on Amazon. It features mm, compelling visuals such as decapitated heads rotting in a pool, the gutting of a human body, and Lactating boar nipples. So brace yourself when you look it up. But what exactly does it mean to do special effects makeup? I asked Barney to define what he does.
3: I mean, in short, I'm a makeup artist. And the stuff that I do is, is stuff that people have been doing for decades. Um, but it's now come to be termed as special makeup artist or special effects makeup artist. So some people just call it special effects, which I take issue with because special effects does uh, practical stuff, bullet hits and uh, um, you know, wind and rain and things floating through the air. You know, that's special effects. Our visual effects will do the digital conversion of, of those things. And then uh, makeup effects became makeup effects because It was, sometimes it wasn't really makeup. Sometimes it wasn't really props. It wasn't really special effects. It was all this sort of weird amalgamated thing, um, like uh, bodies melting. But now I literally got called one time to go do scratches uh, from a dog attack on Woody Harrelson and they called me a special makeup effects artist. Um, Yeah.
1: Now, if it's okay with you, I'd like to talk about your movie, Barney Berman's Wild Boar.
3: Of course I want to talk about the movie. I'm, I've been talking about it a lot lately and I love talking about it actually.
1: There is a part of Barney Berman's Wild Boar. I'm just going to keep saying the name of the film over and over again, <laughs> available on Amazon, where there is a, there's a pool of water with severed heads floating in it. One of which is a slain character whom we've gotten to know earlier in the movie. And and you, you see this severed head in this water revealed by the woman who finds it who his girlfriend and you see that part of his face was submerged in water and so like half of his face looks soggy and waterlogged and gross and the other half just looks you know well dead so
3: recognizable
1: recognizable right <laughs> and then she kisses him <laughs> Oh, there's so many (laughs) moments of this movie. So if you would talk me through, generally speaking, how that head was made and what kind of research you have to do in situations like that to make it look realistic.
3: Well, can I first say, I'm so glad that you described that head exactly the way it was meant to come across. I am always riddled with self-doubt and I'm just thinking, ah, did I do that right? Does it read right? Does it look like, does it look wrong? Is there something? And so thank you for that. <sighs> what was the question oh, you yeah. so a i head mean and, and
1: this is broadly speaking, how do you make a head and did you have to like research dead bodies and decomposition to make sure you got that right
3: well i've I've over the years done a lot of research of dead bodies and, and decomposition and uh, so it's kind of in my brain uh I don't necessarily need to continue looking at those things and they bother me. The real stuff really bothers me. That was Hard another
1: question. At. Yeah. If doing that sort of research on any sort of regular basis gets to you.
3: No, it sickens me. I feel, I get headaches and I feel queasy. and I But if I'm looking at it for the color or for the structure, I can remove myself and look at it that way. But once the reality of it hits, I, I do it for maybe 10, 20 minutes. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I got I to stop.
1: I want to talk about the art of what you do. And I'd like your reaction to an email from my brother, Michael Gladys. He's most famous, of course, for his role in Mad Men as Paul Kinsey. But he's also done a ton of stage and television, including a show on Adult Swim called Eagle Heart from 2011 to 2014. He played the very large chief of police and Actually, Barney, I visited him once during a taping of the show in L.A., and it is likely that you and I met because I distinctly remember being in his trailer for like three hours as he got prosthetics on his face to make it look fatter.
3: I'm pretty sure we did meet because I remember your name. I remember his, him having a sister, and I remember, and I, I kept thinking, did we talk? Did we do this before? But no, I think you coming into the trailers probably when... Uh, What I'm remembering.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so when I told him that I was interviewing you, he wrote What fascinated me most about what you do was the airbrush makeup to blend it all together with my existing face. The layers of color, not just flesh tones, but undertones of rose, red, greens, and blues. It reminded me of when I got to examine a Rembrandt up close and marveled at how many different colors were present in the skin. I felt like I was getting an amazing lesson in painting. So what do you say to that email from my lovely brother?
3: You mentioned, uh, or Michael mentioned, I guess, uh, studying a Rembrandt up close. For me, my Rembrandt was TV, the old tube televisions, not digital monitors we have now. But the tube televisions, uh, when I got up very, very close and looked at them, which you're not supposed to do because it hurts your eyes, grandmother will tell you. It's dots. It was little tiny colored dots. Uh, and a lot of blues and greens and reds, and I thought, wow, this mo- this is mostly not black, not white, not primary colors that you think they are, And that's how I learned to paint. I thought if I can dot those colors in one at a time in layers and then just sort of blanket it with a like a fleshy tone,
1: whatever that flesh is.:
3: Yeah. That became sort of my, my go-to formula for painting someone's face, and uh, it, it has yet to let me down. Do
1: you think because you have to pay so much attention to the minutia in a human face, among other body parts, when you're out and about, I guess maybe I should say, in the before times, when you were out and about encountering people and new faces, do you find yourself studying their faces is that like a default state for you or is it something that kicks in only now and then i'm
3: studying your face right now i'm looking at the (laughs) the wonderful warmth in your cheeks and the the uh, olive tones and you're just very lovely um people are listening on radio can't see and you're so i'm the fortunate one but yes um I mean, before you asked that question, I was literally <laughs> looking at you because I just talked about doing it. So I'm now looking at you thinking, how would I paint that face? How would I, where would I find the life? But I do that with a lot of people, especially when someone strikes me. Sometimes they're exceptionally beautiful because they're just, I don't know, just aesthetically clean. And it's not about makeup they're wearing. It's just about the the flush or the. Uh, dark skin tones that are just incredibly beautiful to me and sometimes it's an old person who has great skin or terrible skin sometimes the the, the sun damage is just like oh wow how do i simulate that sun damage
1: after a movie or a show is done do you get to keep the stuff you make
3: uh, well, you can probably see over my shoulder. There's a guy in the background uh, that's a character from Star Trek. And we did a display version of that character for J.J. Abrams. Uh, so there's one in his office and then I have one in my office. So, there's a, a thing I did as a, as a practical joke, but it ended up being something that I just really love and have worn around from time to time for fun. And it's really just my own big head.
1: And for our radio audience, you are holding up a giant, perfect version of your own head.
3: Yeah. So when people tell me I've got a big head, I say, you're absolutely right. Here it is.
1: Now, when you were putting that beard together, you had, you could just reference yourself right quick.
3: Yeah, we did. And a friend of mine uh, named Denise Bear is like the best hair puncher. And she, well, I've known her since she was 14 years old. And she did all the hair work on this, but you see like in the, the eye, like, eyebrows are all punched on the, on the eyelashes. And there's, there's a whole character in just the hair and getting that right is, you know, is crucial.
1: I know that some of the work you do is also done in ways and in part with computerized special effects. So with that variable, what is the best case scenario? for your industry, for what you do?
3: I mean, the best case scenario is that people continue to honor that, like I said, we're artists and we're there to make characters. We're we're character creators and we want to collaborate. And sometimes that takes some time and some money and some tests. And for producers to understand and respect that, Back in the day on, on, on The Exorcist, I think Dick Smith did 12 different versions of the little girl demon before they came up with what they came up with. Even on something like uh, Tootsie, I believe they, they tried like for something like a year and a half to try in different makeups to find out what's the Tootsie's look before they said, yes, this is going to work. Um, now you get lucky, very lucky if you have a test or maybe, maybe two is almost not unheard of. So, yeah, that's the best case scenario for people to understand and, and devote some time to invest in creating those characters.
1: This is my last question. Oh. <laughs> if money were no object and I wanted you to make a head of me like you have a head of you, how much would it cost for me to commission you to make a head of me?
3: How about if I answer it this way? Uh, years ago, and this is some years ago, probably 10 at least, I asked different people what they would charge to make a fake head. And what's, what's the baseline for making a fake head? Now, baseline means before hair, uh, eyes are shut, so you don't have to put eyes in it. Mouth is closed. So you don't have to put teeth in it. Baseline Likeness of somebody before hair. The lowest someone said was six thousand dollars, and the highest was um, fourteen. More recently, I asked some people, one studio quoted me um, twenty four thousand dollars. This is full head? Full, but that was like full hair, eyes, teeth, hundred percent lifelike thing. So, that's a wide range. I always tried to be reasonable and um, and keep my prices in the, a range, but maybe I shouldn't have. Maybe I should have stood up and said, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, my father and Stan Winston, Stan Winston did uh, Terminator and uh, Aliens and Jurassic Park Dinosaurs. And uh, he and my father and Stan Winston were partners for a couple of years and late 70s and they were going in to see John Milius the guy who wrote and directed Conan the Barbarian so they were going to do they're presenting themselves to do all the makeup effects for Conan the Barbarian and, and they went in they told him everything that they were going to do and John Milius said all right great what's this going to cost me and Stan Winston said without talking about it to my dad first Stan Winston apparently said it's going to cost you a million dollars you've got the two best makeup artists in Hollywood it's going to be the the best makeup effects you've ever seen. And John Millia said, get the f- out of my office. <laughs> so Stan had the nerve to push the envelope and say, we value ourselves this much. You should too. That's one of the things I've had trouble with my father. I've told most people I know I have trouble standing up and say, I'm worth more and you better believe it and pay me more. And Stan ended up you know, getting to be a multimillionaire off making gigantic dinosaurs and things. He was a total success at it. So I now tell other people, raise your prices, raise your rates. It's better for all of us and it will encourage you to do better work. It gives you, it gives you a little padding to do. To, to, if you make a mistake, you can fix it. You can bring other people, whatever it is value yourself more eventually other people will start to see you that way too
1: Barney Berman thank you so much for talking with me today all right thanks so much coming up next you
2: also can't have five peacocks you've got to have somebody who's maybe a little bit more of an observer and when these five came together It just worked.
1: How did the Fab Five on Queer Eye become the Fab Five? And if you want to be considered for a makeover on Queer Eye, what exactly is the casting director looking for? I'm Kyone Wolf. Find out after the break on Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. This hour, you're hearing the second installment of our celebration of those who work behind the scenes of your favorite movies and shows. Something happens to me every time I hear this theme song. That's from the Netflix series Queer Eye. And what happens to me is I get very excited and happy, and then I find the nearest tissue box and prepare to bawl my eyes out. It's complicated and wonderful. The idea behind Queer Eye is that you've got five lifestyle experts, the Fab Five, who specialize in fashion, cooking, grooming, interior design, and culture. And they are all, of course, on the LGBTQ plus spectrum. During each episode, they descend upon one lucky person who gets their inner and outer lives transformed by the team. And no matter how stoic you are, you're usually crying by the end of every episode. Queer Eye on Netflix is the new version of the 2003 series on Bravo, and it's been making people laugh and cry around the world for six seasons now. But none of this could have happened without the perfect people to embody the Fab Five, and the people deserving of an incredible life transformation. Danielle Gervais is the Emmy Award-winning Executive Vice President of Casting and Talent at ITV America. She leads the team that casts the lucky folks who get makeovers for the show and that chose the new Fab Five. I asked Danielle to tell me about how that critical process went.
2: So we had our five categories. We knew we needed to essentially search the country and find the best talent for each of those categories. We talked to thousands of people, interviewed thousands of people and some some incredible talent. Eventually, we were able to narrow it down, right, to a couple hundred, um, and then even further, and took the final group to LA. We overtook a hotel in Los Angeles, all of us. You can imagine what that was like. (laughs) Intense. The very first night, we had just a cocktail thing where we wanted them to meet. We wanted everybody to get to know each other. And, you know, you started to see kind of people gravitate to one another, and we watched everybody, we watched everybody, uh, you know, and then, you know, the next day we started to sit down with, with them and sort of build our five and then say, eh, that didn't quite work. We've got to bring in somebody a little different. You also can't have five peacocks. There can't be five people talking over each other. You've got to have somebody who's maybe a little bit more of a listener, a little bit more of an observer. And when these five came together, it just worked.
1: Now I imagine that there is always some sliver of faith that this will all work out. I mean, I guess that goes for all casting ever, that you you know, you research the people, you interview them, you you see how the chemistry is. But when the lights and cameras go on, there must be some sort of suspended in air feeling of I hope this works. Yeah. I mean, how do you make sense of that? How do you deal with that?
2: The the pressure definitely was was there. And I think we all felt it. And certainly. Sure, it was a complete leap of faith. And to this day, we don't take that for granted. You know, this many seasons in, every time we get the opportunity to do this again and they get the opportunity to do this again, it feels, especially now, it feels like important work. Like we take it really, really seriously, all of us as a team, because it is a huge team effort. And we feel lucky, like we feel very grateful to work on this show.
1: I want to hear about how you choose the heroes, who are the people in each episode who get made over, or as you've said, made better. There are eight to 10 folks chosen per season, and this starts with a nomination process, yeah? What makes for a really great nomination? What makes your heart race as a casting director?
2: Excellent question. Um, Getting these tips from nominators, I think makes it feel so, so genuine, right? We do, by the way, occasionally have people that write in about themselves and sometimes it, it works and it makes sense. And other times it feels a little forced. Um, Whereas if you have somebody who is nominating someone who never would see it coming, you know, there's that sense of surprise when, when they show up. You know, they know they're coming, of course, but they don't realize they don't know when and they don't necessarily know why they've been chosen. That's really special. When you have somebody who's really unassuming, somebody who hasn't seen the show and it's harder now, (laughs) you know, that's pretty great. You know, somebody who's not like a super fan when the guys walk in, it's more like, who the hell are these people? (laughs) That's fun. And, you know, somebody who is a story we've not gotten to tell right? So we've told a lot of incredible stories through these people. And we're always looking to evolve each season and tell and present a new story. Somebody who is doing something special in their community or in their life um, has, you know, an important journey that we want to share and they are open to sharing. That's really important. You know, somebody that lets us in and really goes on the journey. I know that seems like obvious, but we talk to a lot of people who aren't quite ready to dive in and have really in-depth conversations with Karamo, right? Or like even open their closet to Tan. Those we, we need somebody who's sort of an open book.
1: I wonder what skills you engage when you've got to make sure that this nominee is the person you're looking for. I mean, I make a living getting people to open up about sometimes really difficult stuff. But when you're interviewing a candidate, are there questions that you always ask, like standard questions, or is it like free jazz? See where you go. See how they open up?
2: I think it's always both, right? And I don't I never I'm somebody I, I like to share the credit. My casting directors are so skilled. Um, we always need to hit on the five categories. So what does your you know, what's your daily wardrobe look like? And it's always those nuances that we like to point out that, you know, end up working. You know, I remember um, Oh God, we had a woman who was obsessed with poop emojis and she was in Philly and it was just poop emojis. It's those little nuances. It's not just like my closet's a mess. It's more specific now. We love, we love funny. We love just quirky, unexpected, funny bits. So we're always looking for those types of sort of funny things. But then, yeah, those interviews go all over the place because you never know. You think you've got the story. I'm sure you can relate to this. Like you think you know the story you want to tell. And then as you dive in, you realize there is so much more that you haven't even scratched that this person could potentially explore uh, on their journey. And that happens, I would say, I would say 90% of the time.
1: To what degree are you looking for someone who's not necessarily disheveled? but someone who will likely result in a staggeringly different physical result at the end of the episode. We love that,
2: right? Like, we love when you can say, oh, my gosh, this person is going to look like a different human being at the end of this. And you can see sometimes that's exactly what happens. And other times it's a little bit more subdued. The makeover itself you know, is a little bit more understated, but they themselves, it's all about like at the end of the day, like how are they feeling at the end of it? And you can just tell they walk differently. They carry themselves differently at the end. So we do definitely look for that though, because that's the fun, you know, the fun of the show is to see those before and afters too. That's a huge piece. And again, tell stories that feel like they are going to resonate now.
1: And while, you know, the physical transformation is really compelling, there's also a lot of transformations that are on the inside, this personal evolution. How much is that a factor?
2: Yeah, that's huge. I mean, that's huge. And if you feel that's that's what I'm saying, like if if somebody just doesn't feel ready to take that sort of journey, because it is a journey and it's intense, they've got to sort of open up fairly quickly. And so if someone's not quite there yet, it makes it incredibly difficult Uh, so we always are looking for people
1: that are ready. Another tough thing to weed out would be someone who's really in it for the free house renovations, you know, or the the feeling of being on the spotlight of this powerful show. How do you anticipate or weed out those sort of ulterior motives?
2: Yeah, that's tricky. And it gets harder, right, with every season, because the show is more well known, you start to have people that are kind of Fab five fans and they want to meet them. And we've gotten pretty good. The team is pretty great at sussing out, you know, who wants the free furniture and it, and it really comes down to, I think those interviews and, you know, you just have a gut check and if it feels like they're giving you all of the right answers uh, sort of like tailor made for an episode that can be a little a bit of a flag for us. You know, we like, they like to do the dirty work, right? We like to dig in uh, and find the story, not have it sort of laid out on a platter. That can be a little bit of a, a flag.
1: And I imagine you do social media and other background checks, which also give you a good sense of the personality of this person. Exactly. And I think, you know, the social media
2: of it all, We we have to look into that carefully, just to make sure that there's not something there that we would be rewarding someone who at the end of the day shouldn't necessarily be rewarded.
1: When the glorious day has come and you have chosen your eight or 10 people who will be heroes, how does that feel? Do you celebrate?
2: Um, That's a good question. No one's ever asked that. And really, you know, we do it obviously in lockstep with, with Netflix and so you kind of choose as a committee, but it is like sort of picking your favorite children, right? Because you get attached to some of these folks. And so they all feel deserving. They're all, we, we put that work into those people because we feel like they would make for wonderful heroes. So in the end, when you have it, you're happy and you're relieved, of course, But you're also feeling like, oh, gosh, if we could just go back to this place, go back to the city and do these two, then, you know, so it's always a little bittersweet, I think, for the team. Yeah.
1: I wonder, since you have so much experience finding the people who will be the subjects of the show and weeding out folks who are either just not the right fit or who are interpreted as applying for more selfish reasons, do you think that you were drawn to this kind of work because you were already good? at seeing through the nonsense and or did this work make you better at seeking out people who are more authentic
2: yeah i have a pretty good bullshit meter like i feel like i can usually pick it up i majored in journalism in school i was going to be a reporter that was going to be my job but i will say there's a bit of journalism in the process and i can i can appreciate that i think doing what i've done in in my career has definitely given me, I think, a little bit more of like, I can I can sort of suss out who feels a little more genuine and, and who doesn't. I've learned, but I I had a little bit of that, I think, before I started. And, and as do people on my team, you know, a lot of perceptive listeners. You're doing a lot of listening, making people feel
1: comfortable. That's a big part of the job. How often would you get someone who would hear what you do for a living, and then they would change you know like they clearly want you to give them an opportunity now that they know what you do does that happen yeah there was a there was a period where
2: I wasn't telling people I would just make up jobs it happens and it's always like I know somebody that should be should have their own show and the truth is like there's not many people that should have their own show there really aren't. And, uh, but you always um, listen, I never say never. You never know. The truth is I live in this world of, I can never pass up hearing a story because you just, you never know. It could be that one thing that ends up being their own show. So at the same time, as much as you're sort of like, okay, tell me what it is. <laughs> um, you, you do never know. And I'm always, oh, I, my ears are open
1: just in case. Well, Danielle Gervais, executive vice president of casting and talent at ITV America, known especially for your and your team's work, bringing us the Fab Five and all the heroes of Queer Eye on Netflix. Thank you so much for talking with me.
2: Thank you. It's been such a nice conversation, so thank you for having me.
1: Check out the first in this behind the scenes series of backstage interviews, including a conversation with Issa Ray's hairstylist, an intimacy coordinator, and the illustrator for the Great British Bake Off. That's at ctpublic.org audacious, where you can also listen back to shows about things like stuttering and other speech disfluencies, what it's like making a living as a psychic, my first visit to a nudist resort, what it's like to be a world-famous meme, and what happens when you act like you belong in places where you definitely don't belong. That's ctpublic.org audacious. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode and leave a review in iTunes. Reviews are massively helpful in getting new folks to find the show. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at KionWolf. And my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online, use the hashtag AudaciousPublic. Thanks for listening.